Heavenly Father, we do believe and have eternal life in Christ alone, by your very grace alone. For no other entity, no other person, no other spirit can be called who you are. We pray, God, that as we listen to these words from Scripture, and as we let them work on us, I pray that we begin to not only accept that as a fact, that in Christ alone we have eternal life, but begin to not just consider, but to begin to really live out and reflect on not just here, but when we leave here every day, tomorrow morning, tomorrow, at any time, what it means that we do have eternal life in Christ alone. What does that mean, God? And what can you do with a life seeking what that means in its fullness to live out and reflect who you are? Help us reflect on these things, God, as we turn to your word and as we turn to you to work on our hearts to make us more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here once again. It's good to see you all. And uh, these days, not just with what's going on with us, but these days are just, you know, the days and weeks are long and the years are even longer, right? I've often talked about the decade of 2020. But yet, there's joy, yet there is peace, yet there is hope, yet there are many things which I pray we believe in that the world is struggling with. And it's okay to struggle, but I thank you for being here today, not just to encourage each other, not just to sing and pray together, but also by hoping, hopefully encouraging someone else by being encouraged and being reminded of the fact that, yes, there are things in this world beyond us that are greater than us, and praise God for that. Because if it was left to us, well, we saw what happened when the things were left up to us. We want to continue our Love Is series today, and I just want to actually really quickly, not to get too somber too quickly, but reflect on actually, eh, let's go ahead and do the whole, I was debating. Pause for a second, just look away. I didn't plan this. I should have planned it. But I want to go back to the song that Thomas Wood sang here. Just consider this chorus for a minute. There we go. I left, I left it all for thee, as thou left aught for me. I suffered much for thee, more than my tongue can tell. To rescue thee from hell, born and born it all for thee, what hast thou born for me? Even considering the one before this, Go back. There's a lot of clicks in this PowerPoint. Goodness sakes. Um, even just looking at this song, I just want to actually read through this. I know we just sang it, but I want to read this song just real quickly. I traveled down a lonely road, and no one seemed to care. The burden on my weary back bowed me to despair. I often complained to Jesus how folks were treating me. Then I heard him say so tenderly, My feet were also weary upon the Calvary road. The cross became so heavy I fell beneath the load. Be faithful, weary pilgrim. The morning I can see. Just lift your cross and follow close to me. I want to remind us just real quick, in these times when we had a cross to carry, what did it mean? where did it mean you were going if you were carrying a cross? To die. I worked so hard for Jesus, I often boast and say, I've sacrificed a lot of things to walk the narrow way. I gave up fame and fortune. I'm worth a lot to thee. Then I hear him gently say to me, I left the throne of glory and accounted it but loss. My hands were nailed in anger upon a cruel cross, but now we'll make the journey with your hands safe in mine, so lift your cross and follow close to me. 
So if Jesus says, I die upon a foreign field someday, it would be no more than love demands, no less could I repay. No greater love hath mortal man than for a friend to die. These are the words he gently spoke to me. If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. But if by death to living they can thy glory see, I'll take my cross and follow close to thee. Now we sing these words, and it's a beautiful song, it's a good song. We sing these words. I'm going to wait to go on so they're not distracted by the transitioning PowerPoint. Click, 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 click. We sing these words. Do we ever actually consider the implication of if we took... Now, I know that the songs are not necessarily Scripture, but I mean, they're pretty close, and they should be. Good songs should should be. What's the implication of actually singing that song? What if we could only sing songs that we actually were willing to live out? And what does that mean, what love is, if that's part of what love is? Part of our history, and some of you in here are good history buffs, some of our history uh, that uh, has a lot of interesting stuff around it are the times of the plagues. And in this case, I'm going to talk specifically about uh, probably what they consider to be a smallpox outbreak. We're not really sure. In the second and fourth centuries, as well as the plague, the bubonic, blue, bubonic or black plague in the 1300s and 1500s. Bubon- I sh- there should be a riddle, a uh, of bubonic, same with toy boat. Maybe not. Doesn't matter. <clears throat> I want to consider these times for a minute because these tears in history actually reveal a lot about what love is. And I actually have some things. I, I decided to spare you some pictures of bubonic plague. You're welcome. I made the mistake of actually just Googling it and not Googling stuff about it. And I was like, oh! <laughs> I want to read you a few things, and these are from, I can give you the sources if you want. These are from history books. These are from history scholars. Uh, one, I'll quote the source in just a minute, but just listen here for a minute. <clears throat> in October 1347, when a, a trading ship fresh from the Crimea docked at a harbor in Sicily, dead and dying men lay at the oars. The sailors had black swellings the size of eggs in their armpits and groins, swellings that oozed blood and pus and spreading boils and black blotches on the skin. The sick endured severe pain and died within five days of the first symptoms. Other symptoms appeared in some of the victims, continuous fever and spitting of blood. These victims coughed, sweated heavily, and died within three days or less, sometimes 24 hours. No matter the symptoms, everything about the victims smelled foul, and depression and despair fell over them when they contracted the disease. Born by ships traveling the coast and rivers by early 1348, the plague, bubonic plague, had penetrated Italy, North Africa, France, and crossed the English Channel. In that given area, the plague wrecked its havoc within four to six months and then faded, except in larger cities. There it slowed in winter only to reappear in spring to rage for another six months. It goes on about how it spread through Europe. By the mid-1350, the plague had crossed into most of Europe. The mortality rate ranged from 20% in some places to 90% in others. In many rural villages, the last survivors moved away, and the village sank back into the wilderness, leaving only grass-covered mounds. Overall, the estimate of one medieval observer matches that of modern demographers. A third of the world died. That meant about 20 million deaths. So, that was the time. And part of that time was continuing on. 
Rather than encourage mutual aid, the plague's deadliness drove people from one another. They want to put a modern nomenclature into quarantine and isolation. One Sicilian friar reported, magistrates and notaries refused to come and make wills of the dying, and worse, even the priests did not come to hear their confessions. And one account called the Decameron. The author even said, one man shunned another. Kinsfolk held aloof. Brother was forsaken by brother, oftentimes husband by wife. Nay, what is more, and scarcely to be believed, fathers and mothers were found to abandon their own children to their faith, untended, unvisited, if they had been strangers. Yet, as oft reported, there are also pockets of extraordinary Christian charity. According to one French chronicler, the nuns at one city hospital, having no fear of death, tended the sick with all sweetness and humility. New nuns replaced those who had died, until most had died. Many times renewed by death, they now rest in peace with Christ, as we may piously believe. So I want you to see the contrast there as gruesome as that is to start out a sermon with. Isolation, quarantine, desolation, and yet what stands out among some of it is that the Christian nuns who stood and died. Earlier in history, during one of the plagues of the Roman Empire in the second century, named for a bishop who gave a colorful account of this disease, he writes that Sorry. <laughs> uh, I lost my place. I even highlighted and I still lost my place. This is why I don't do notes, because I always lose my place. <laughs> I'll just read it here. Probably disease rate to abode the plague of Cypri and helped set off the crisis of the third century in the Roman world. But it did something else too. It triggered the explosive growth of Christianity. Cyprian sermons told Christians not to grieve for plague victims who live in heaven, but to redouble efforts to care for the living. His fellow bishop Dionysus described how Christians, heedless of danger, took charge of the sick, courting and attending to their every need. A century later, the actively pagan emperor Julian, here's where I was trying to find, would complain bitterly of how the Galileans would care for even non-Christian sick people, while the church historian Pontius recounts how Christians ensured that good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. This habit of sacrificial care reappeared throughout history. In 15... 27, when the bubonic plague hit Rittenberg, Martin Luther refused calls to flee the city and protect himself. Rather, he stayed and ministered to the sick. The refusal flee, to flee cost his daughter Elizabeth her life, but it produced a tract, whether Christians should flee the plague, where Luther provides clear articulation of the Christian epidemic response. We die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. And finally, where's the first page? So I don't do notes, man. <laughs> Here we go. Once again, the Bishop Dionysus described events in Alexandria. At the first onset of the disease, they, the pagans, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal diseases. Do they might, they found it difficult to escape. But, Christians often would meet the obligations to care for the sick rather than desert them. As a, histor a historian pointed out, that even quite elementary nursing would greatly reduce mortality. It is entirely possible that Christian nursing reduced mortality by as much as two-thirds. 
even though a great many of the Christians who attended the sick also died. So sorry that was a bit clunky. But the whole point that I want you to hear, and not just from me, I wanted you to hear some of the actual accounts, is that even in these times, even as many people deserted, even as many people ran, even pagan, pagan, neighbor to neighbor, family against family, deserted each other, what stands out among history and as actually is responsible for a huge growth of Christianity is the fact that Christians, because they believe not only in what Christ promised, but because they believed in the character and nature of the Messiah they worship, stayed and cared for those who no one else would stay and care for. I'm glad Thomas picked that because that's one of the most visceral images in history of Christians really taking up their cross, potentially, in the service of Christ. Really taking up, sometimes very literally taking up their cross to, for the sake of caring for those who cannot care for themselves. And it's recorded, as I said, it reduced mortality in the 1300s, 1500s, 1500s by two-thirds, potentially, even though a great number of Christians died. I bring all that up to promote this contrast. We say what love is. We believe what love is. I have no doubt of anyone today believing in these things and saying, yes, that's a good idea. Yes, that's a wonderful thing. Yes, that's what love is. Yes, that's what serving Christ is like. Except out of curiosity, what is the modern church thought of right now, do you think? Well, I googled it. I typed in Christians are to Google First one, why American Christians are turning people off from the church. Number one, USA Today. Look down here. Three things Christians do that non-Christians despise. This is just Christians are Google search this morning, as a matter of fact. Second, a little bit farther down the page. Christians via Wikipedia. We can count on that. <laughs> Number four, Christians are more, twice, are more than twice as likely to blame a person's, what that says is, poverty on lack of effort. Meaning, if you're poor, then you deserve that, basically. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian? Number uh, five post, or six post, Christian cruelty in the face of COVID-19. Racism among white Christians is higher than among, and I'm not sure what it says, but that's the headline. And then the last one here by even Barna, Christians, more like Jesus or Pharisees. These are the first ten results. Christians are. How does that strike you? This is what people Google and you can always trust the internet. I'm not sure if I like that. We've been talking that love is active, present, kind, and vulnerable. And I want to challenge you on something. I want to challenge you on this very thought. If Christians were to take being actively loving being presently loving, truly being present, truly being kind in the way that we describe it, and truly being vulnerable, you know what many people would call us? Radical. And yet Christ calls us to have a radical kind of love. And I want to talk about three things today. Radical in thought, radical in action, and radical in goal. Radical love. Now, I don't know what comes to mind whenever you hear the word radical. Well, let's delve into a little bit, shall we? First and foremost, radical in thought. And I actually want to turn right to the Sermon on the Mount. There's almost nothing better than the Sermon on the Mount to describe some of these things. And I want to 
quite literally just go through a few things that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. And we read them, and one of the things... Okay, so quick story to illustrate this point. Back in South Dakota, there was a girl who came to the campus house, and she came and was, and was amazed, and we didn't know why, that there was a Bible study, meaning just a Bible study, meaning the campus minister and I was there, opened the Bible and said, here's what the Bible says, here's what it means, any questions? All right, go on. And she just went on and on at the end of the, at the, end of the little study about, that was awesome, that was great. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, good. it's good. She came to church, and afterwards she commented that, the Bible class and the sermon were both right out of Scripture. And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good, yeah. Well, then she came back to the Canvas House study, and she went, and so finally she asked the question, which had obviously been permeating. She says, so, is every lesson that you guys do out of the Bible? And she has, had come from another church. And of course the Canvas Fish and I were like, yeah. She was like, Whoa! We're like, well, what does your church talk about? And she says, mostly politics. She said it had been months since she'd heard something right out of the Bible that says, here's the Bible says. I say that to say, one, maybe that's Google search, but then two, it reinforced for me and Silas, the campus minister, that sometimes we take studying the Bible for granted. I've actually heard people saying, not another Bible study. Can't we do a book or something? Can we do a video? Sometimes we're so blessed Brothers and sisters, we complain about having to study the Bible. What I want to ha- say is that we read these things. We read the Sermon on the Mount. Don't let it just hit you and be like, yeah, that's what it says. Because if you take some of these things seriously, what Jesus is saying in the chapters four, uh, 5, 6, and 7, some of the things he's doing is reverting things that in the old law or in the old tradition had been solely judged via behavior and then reverting them from a behavior to now being held accountable even for your thoughts. And in all honesty, we read this, we go, yeah, of course. You realize what a radical thing this was at that time. For someone to dare look at you and say, Mark, you're no longer accountable for just what you do. You're accountable to God for what you think. How dare you? He's like, I created you. It's a radical thing to actually say, no longer is just what you do judge, but your intention, what you're thinking, what you're thinking about people God knows and will judge you for. For instance, no longer is it just in 522, okay, if you don't murder someone, you're a good guy, good job. Now if you're angry with someone, don't resolve that anger, you're just guilty as a murderer. Just think about that. Think about that in your life. Just fine. In my life. You know how many times I've according to that definition, killed someone in my life? I killed like ten people this week. Not something you hear from the pulpit every now and then, is it? If I'm being honest with you, any time that I was angry this week, I probably... At least seven people. And we laugh at that, except that's what the verse says. If you're angry with someone or angry at someone, if you have anger towards someone and you unresolve it, or if it's misplaced... You're guilty of murder. How many people have you killed this week? Lust and adultery. Let's get even farther down the rabbit hole. Lust and adultery. No longer is it just if you don't physically have the act with somebody, but now every time you lusted towards someone or something, you've committed adultery. Now, no longer... Is it just, if you avoid people, let's read 43 through 48 just to make sure we're on the same page here. 
If you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say you love your enemies and pray for those who persecuted you. When is the last time that you felt someone was treating you unjustly and you, and you actually sat down the first thing you did and prayed for them? And not just prayed, God, if I have to do this, I'm doing Actually prayed for them. Actually prayed God's blessing upon them. Actually prayed not for God to change them. How many times have we prayed that? God, if you could just change this person, this person, we'd all be hunky-dory. Prayed for them, for who they are, for God to use them. Prayed in and for your perceived persecution. Let's keep going, since we're already this far. <laughs> the whole concept of prayer, not just that you do it, but now it matters to whom you pray, how you pray. Not that you have to say an exact thing, but it's not just about if you babble words or if you can check it off your list. And I, don't, I know we don't think of prayer that way. I hope we don't at least. But now it really does matter that you call God Father and it matters if your heart, it matters what order that your prayers are in. God, give me everything. God, may your kingdom come first. Yeah. It matters. Not just that you do it, but it matters what and how. It matters now, not just if something is valuable, but your thoughts, your intentions, your desires on what is valuable. In 6.21, For your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not just a matter of what you can physically accumulate, but now God is holding you accountable for what is in most priority in your heart. How many of us this week had our treasure in the wrong place? Worry. I've done whole sermons on this. I won't this time. Is it okay to worry? Well, it's a natural human emotion. But is it okay to deal with worry in worldly or uh, unfaithful ways? No. It's not just a matter of if you now don't do something or it physically affects you. Now, even the fact that you're worrying, how you deal with it, matters. How you judge. <laughs> Once again, how you judge people matters. Judge not lest you be judged. For the judgment you pronounce... Uh, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. What would happen to the world if literally every time someone attacks someone on social media, a bomb went off? We wouldn't need nuclear annihilation. We'd do it to ourselves anyway. But once again, go back to anger. Go back to lust. Go back to judgment. It's not just talking about things that you do. It's talking even about the things that you think and the things that you feel. And finally, discipleship. It's not just that you do a good thing, but it matters why and to whom you do it. In verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But we know from other things it's not just doing, it's why and how. I want to impress upon you, not that I'm getting out on you, but I want to impress upon you that we read these words and we discuss them and we go, yeah, that's what Jesus said. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Pause for a minute and look at really what this is saying. Look at how radical this is compared to any other sort of legislation you know, compared to any other sort of religion you know, compared to any other sort of personal accountability. I mean, self-help programs don't follow this model because they're too, <laughs> too hard. Brothers and sisters, let's call it what it is. To live this way is radical. It's not something the world wants. It's not something which we even we want every now and then. And is it easy? No. It's radical. It's radical to be held accountable not just for what we do, but even the thoughts we think. 
and what we do with the thoughts that we think. Now, real quick, the Bible never says that having a thought or having, you know, something or having, you know, the feelings which we have as people is wrong. We tell our kids all the time, it's not wrong to be angry. Sometimes it comes, sometimes we can't help it. But what we do with it immediately after we have the feeling, this is what, or the thought, this is what God is talking about, I believe. To be held accountable even for something that quick is radical. Why does it matter? Well, because our thoughts matter. Romans 8, 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh, shut their mind on things of the flesh. Now, real quick, I want to define something right here. We have bad, we have a couple centuries of bad exegesis when it comes to this word flesh. It doesn't just mean according to our bodies. It doesn't just mean thinking in a bodily way. What the flesh means all throughout Scripture is according to the world, according to that which is not spiritual, according to that which is not of God. Genesis tells us that our bodies are made to reflect the glory of God. So it's not just talking about what our bodies want. It's, think, it's a whole way of thinking. It's a whole way of saying that this is good enough. It's a whole way of submitting ourselves only to desires of the world. That kind of thing. It's not saying our bodies or anything physical is bad. That's actually Gnosticism, by the way. It's saying that this is a way of thinking according to the flesh, to the, spiritual, uh, to the physical things, to the world. They rule. They're the priority. They're the treasure. All right? So, for those who live according to that... Set their minds on that. It makes sense. But those who live according to the Spirit, meaning God's way, God's priority, God's treasure, God's order, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set their mind on the flesh is death. To set your mind on anything that doesn't place God at the top, we've talked about this, is death. It makes sense. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why? Because it doesn't matter as much. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, whoever are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and the Spirit is life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's why we know it can't all physical things can't be bad because it's talking about how He will raise your body at the last day. It's talking about the direction according to the treasure. It's talking about the priorities. It's talking about what you trust in. All I'm saying here is that our thoughts matter. You want two more scriptures? Well, I'll give them to you. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That should be obvious, right? Why would Paul have to say it? Let's go another direction real quick. Jesus, in the midst of his ministry, when he saw the crowds he had, compassion on them because they harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What would be the result if Jesus was annoyed by them? Or if Jesus was too busy for them? Talk about what Jesus thought. Why am I talking about this? It's a very simple thing that we all know, but I want to point out anyway. How we think will determine what kind of Christian we will be. I want to say that again. How we think will determine what kind of Christian we will be. This is the Romans 8 thing. We can be baptized in Christ and strive for Him, but if we still think in worldly ways, if we still think in the wrong priority, if we still think with the wrong things on the treasure seat of our heart, if we still think and have the wrong thought to do the wrong things from our thoughts, it will determine what kind of Christian we are. And I'm not just talking about eternal judgment. That's God's job. 
I'm talking about your witness of Christianity, your reflection, our reflection as a church, our life as kingdom people is largely determined by how and what we think. Hopefully that didn't surprise you, but it's true. This is why... Well, I won't delve into details, but this is why certain ways of thinking maybe even go so far as addictive ways of thinking, are so harmful because it messes with how we even interpret information, let alone what we do about them. Apply that how you will. Just to be aware, how we think determine what kind of Christian we will be. I'm going to skip forward a little bit just because, well, no I won't. <laughs> Two more scriptures on this. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. I'm going to go back and heal those who are sick. Don't you know you'll die? Probably. I'm going to go anyway. That's foolish. Maybe. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject merely to human judgments. Do you hear about that church which spent $100,000 on this project? And Man, I don't know what they were thinking. It's such a horrible investment. So, For who has known the mind of God or the Lord has to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And finally, Romans 12, something which I'll come back to in a little bit. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what renewing means? It's constantly made new. Meaning as you learn things, as you discern things, as you grow in Christ, those things become part of of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. As you learn things, as you discern things, as you mature, some things will be replaced. And that's good. How we think determines what kind of Christian we will be. They also determine what actions we will take because kingdom thoughts will lead to kingdom actions, whereas worldly thoughts will lead to worldly actions. It makes sense. And I just closed my Bible. Where'd Matthew go? Once again, I want to go through quickly here Matthew 5 and talk about some of these very things that we see right here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that our actions are supposed to be salt and light. We talked about this earlier, that we're not commanded to be, you know, do a certain thing, but the fact that salt, by nature of being salt, will impact whatever it's touching. Meaning, you have to be salt in order to be impact what you're touching. Light, by the very nature of being light, will disturb the darkness. It's only true if you're not light. Meaning, we have to know what actions and actions salt and light take if we that's indeed if indeed that's what we are. Righteousness, verse twenty of chapter five. This is a hard one for people. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now it's not about attaining your righteousness only by what you do, but what does it mean? What do you do if you are indeed righteous with God? Indeed, even more righteous than these fellows. It matters. Reconciliation five twenty three twenty four. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there is something that uh, your brother has against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. You know what a radical thing it is for someone to teach if you are in the midst of worshiping me and you recognize and remember this thing, stop and go take care of it. No Roman or Greek god would have the humility to say that. No 
pagan god or no other god that I can think of would have the humility to say, actually, this is more important right now because what you do and how you do that affects this. Continue on. Again, how you treat your enemies, not just the fact that you have to have the mindset for your enemies, but how you actually treat them. Let's just put them all up here just real quick. Once again, the very practice of prayer is affected by what you think about prayer and your thoughts about prayer and why you're doing it, to whom you're doing it, and what kind of relationship you have. The fact that you can ask God, ask, seek, and knock. We have the parables of the persistent widow and such, meaning that's the kind of God you can ask. Well, if you're going to act that way, you need to think the right way in order to do that. Verse 21, once again, we talked about this before. The source of salvation is not just in what you do, but yet it's who you're doing it with, why you're doing it. They all go together. And finally, a life of practice. Verse 24 talks about how... I'm going to read this, actually, this verse, actually. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And we know the story. What I want to try to say is that it's not just thinking the right things, but also the right kinds of actions, the right types of behaviors come from the right types of thoughts. And the thing is which I'm trying to make the point of is both of those things are radical in comparison to what goes before and according to the world. Let's consider Acts 2 for a second. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, meaning the early church, to fellowship and the breaking of bread into prayer. Everyone was filled with all the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And they continued meeting day by day. I think the radical thing is verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. What if? What if in order to be a member of the church, you had to give the church the title and deed to your house and to your car and to your property and say, in case anyone can benefit from this, you have to give it up. How big do you think that church would be? What do you think that church could do? That's actually a good question. What do we do about some of these truths and what do we do as a church? Maybe the best way to ask it is how do we function? Both as people, both as a congregation, both as an organization, both as families, whatever you want to say. Because here's the thing, if this is true, that the thoughts we have, the kingdom thoughts, influence our actions and then our actions are from and influence from the thoughts, How might that, or how does that, or how should that impact our life, our family, our congregation? And put in the context, how should they influence things if the thoughts we are having are the same thoughts of Jesus, are the same thoughts as Christ, are the same thoughts as the early church, the things which actually make us do and live the Sermon on the Mount. Those radical things. It matters because no matter what context you're in, we will never act bigger than how big we believe our God to be. And that's not all. But wait, there's more. We will never act, throw whatever word you want in here, we will never act more loving than how loving we believe our God to be. We will never act more generously than how generous we believe our God to be. We will never act more forgiving than how forgiving we believe our God to be. You can put any word in here and have it be true. 
The thoughts we think about who God is and what He means and what He lives and how He impacts us will influence how we act. And we will never be more, what have you, than how whatever we believe our God to be. We will never be more than what we believe our God is. In essence, I want to put it another way, we will never exceed the limits we ourselves place on God. You want to tell me thinking is important? What about thinking that, oh, we can't do this because? Who says? Church, this is a conviction, but I also think what Scripture teaches us, we must stop limiting ourselves due to worldly thinking and unleash ourselves in and through the power of God. Why does this matter? Well, I've been in ministry a little while, but I've also been alive for a little while. I know what it's like to think, hmm, I don't have enough money to do that, which I know God would want me to do. What would happen? I'm not saying be irresponsible. I'll get to that in just a minute. I'm not saying throw caution. I'm not saying open the treasure troves and be like, here, take. But what if we stopped limiting what we think is possible based on a worldly understanding of what having good finances is like? What if we stopped limiting what is possible by having our own expectations get in the way of what we could do with our budget? Both ourselves and also our church budget. What if we could unleash the means to truly have a relationship with each other? Instead of saying the world, well, you can't associate with these people, or you can't say that, or you can't, you can't be this way, or... or whatever have you, whatever limits that we have placed on ourselves and instead of following what true koinonia is, what if, instead of debating, well, this is good, this is bad, what if we served in the ways that the early church did? Make sure no one had any need. We see something, we don't even ask, like, hey, should we do this? What if we just do it? What if we stop saying, well, we have to go through this process? What if we just served as God has served us? What? I'm not saying don't be responsible. I'm not saying that. I'm saying just Think about it in the core principle. What if we got rid of everything that limits the church's ability to serve our community? Whatever you think of, whatever comes to mind, what could we do? What could God do with us? And finally, what if actually we redefine biblically what stewardship is? You know, the thing is, we tend to think stewardship is being responsible with what God has given us. There's an element to that. But stewardship... Giving is being responsible for what God has given you for the sake of God's mission. God's not impressed with our savings accounts. He's impressed with how we use our money for the Lord. He's not impressed with how much things we have at our house, how, how big our food budget is, or how big our, our clothing giveaway is. He's impressed with what we do with it. And why? Stewardship is not being responsible or holding on to things according to our definition but holding on to things and doing with them something that furthers God's mission through us. What could we do if we took off any limit that we place on ourselves and let God unleash us? Because indeed, that's the goal. Not just being radicals per se, but doing things which maybe the world says doesn't make sense, does it? Except we go, God can do with it amazing things. Just look at the Beatitudes for a second. And really, once again, look at them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Don't think of yourself too much. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the clean and pure heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. The world looks at these and goes, that's soft, that's weak, that's vulnerable, that doesn't matter. You'll never get anywhere in life. You'll never have an impact. The question is, by whose standard are you judging? Brothers and sisters, I believe that if we take the mission of God, which is not just scoot by, do something good until we get to heaven, but the mission of God is to make disciples, not just wait for them to come to us, but go make disciples, is to be kingdom people, and is to reflect the glory of God into the world. If we take that, here's what I want to challenge us this morning. If we take that mission and really wrap into it being active, being present, being vulnerable, being kind, you know what that makes us? Radicals. Radicals for Christ. Here's the thing. Radical first definition is not someone who's an extremist, but a radical's first definition is relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, far-reaching and thorough. Brothers and sisters, we need to reclaim the church's identity of people who are loving like Christ and everything that means, everything that means Because the nature of Christ, the way He thinks, the way He does, the way He lives, the way He loves, has impacted us, our very nature, all the way thoroughly, in and out, upwards, downwards, happy all the time. If we're afraid to be called radical by the world, we'll never be bigger than that. But by whose standard do we care about? And by whose standard and by whose power can we really be everything we're meant to be and more? There's only one person for those of us who have invited him and accepted the life that he offers and submitted to him who now lives in us. And it ain't our politics, it ain't our president, it ain't our standards, it ain't our expectations. It's Christ. who may be just a bit more radical than we may like. But maybe so should we be too. Because that's what love is.